Morning, church. Am I on? Yes. Happy Father's Day. Hands up if you got breakfast in bed. No, neither did I. My wife's got her hand up. Uh, We're into, or we're continuing, I should say, with the series in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're up to chapter 26, verses 17 to 30, which you can see on the screen and which I'll read now. Starting at verse 17, and my Bible has a little heading. It calls it the Last Supper. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparation for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now... Most of you will be aware that this painting was painted by Leonardo da Vinci centuries ago. And there's some things about this particular uh, painting that I find, uh, how can I put it, rather strange, I suppose. Because Jesus says in this passage... The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. In other words, he's saying Judas would have dipped his hand with some bread, presumably, into a bowl probably containing uh, olive oil or something similar. Now, in this painting... Whoops. In this painting, if I've got a... uh, I think this is... Anyway, uh, one, two, three from the left of Jesus is a man with very dark black hair. 
Now, according to other uh, images of this particular Last Supper, that is Judas. Now, it's highly unlikely that if Judas is the one that dipped his bread into a bowl in front of Jesus, that uh, Judas would have been sitting that far away from him. It's much more likely that uh, he would have been sitting alongside Jesus. And that's why it says, as I said, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. Now, as I said, in my Bible, the heading of this particular passage is the Last Supper. And it's no coincidence, of course, that this particular supper was at the Passover. And that most of what Jesus had to say here relates to the Passover uh, festival, of course, celebrating the fact that the children of Israel left Egypt under a cloud, or at least left Egypt after the firstborn had been killed right across the land of Egypt. And they were safe because they had killed a lamb and they had put the blood around the doorposts and the lintel of their houses. And we have every reason to believe that Jesus now was comparing himself to the Passover lamb because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So I'm going to assume that Jesus behind or behind what Jesus has to say here, he's really indicating to the disciples that he was the Passover lamb. And we sometimes forget that. We take communion as we did this morning and we sometimes forget that the whole, the whole uh, communion, whether we call it communion or the Lord's Supper or whatever we call it, I prefer the name communion, whatever we call it, it was instituted at the Passover and a lot of the meaning behind what we do when we, commit, when we have communion is based on the teachings of the Passover. And in order to understand what the Passover is about, it's probably worth reading this passage in Exodus chapter 12. It says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 to 7, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbour, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in, according, in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Interesting fact in this is that the lamb was actually in the household for four days. So the children, of course, would have been rather upset, I'm sure, when it came time to sacrifice and kill the lamb. But the lamb had to be killed. You might think, well, the most important thing was the blood. Indeed, the blood had to be on the doorposts and lintel in order for the avenging angel to pass over them. Those houses that had, didn't have the, the blood on the doorposts, of course, lost their firstborn children. But 
the children of Israel had put the, the blood over the doorposts. Did you need to kill the animal to do that? I suppose they could have extracted blood for that. But no, the animal had to be killed and they had to be roasted and they had to eat it themselves in their household. And I think Jesus in this Last Supper is really uh, basically saying, well, we are celebrating the Passover now, but when I say that this uh, bread is, uh, is my blood and this, uh, this wine is my, is my, this bread is my body, I should say, and this wine is my blood, he's likening himself to the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. And so basically, the lamb at the Passover was sacrificed as a substitution. The lamb was sacrificed in order that the eldest child not be killed by the avenging angel. And he is saying in this passage here that he is our substitute. And I don't know about you, but I've talked to people over the years about my Christian faith and one of the objections I find is that people say, how can you possibly believe that someone else can pay the penalty for your sins. We've grown up knowing that if I do something wrong, then I pay the time. Do the crime, pay the time. But what the Christian faith believes and what Jesus is saying here in this passage is that the lamb was a substitute. Instead of the firstborn dying, the lamb died. And it's the gospel all in one. We sometimes forget that the communion that we celebrate is actually the gospel. The gospel is intertwined in it. In fact, that song we just sang, um, I think it was the second one we sang, Man of Sorrows, it contains all of the gospel in those words. I don't know whether you were looking at them or uh, really taking them in as you were singing them. But the gospel basically says that Christ is our substitute. And that's what he's saying in this passage here that as the Paschal Lamb, as the Passover Lamb, he is our substitute. He paid the penalty for our sins. As it says in this verse here, Hebrews 9. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the angels to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. His sacrifice paid the penalty for our sins. He also bore God's wrath. In 1 John 4, it says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word atoning or atonement means to, how can I put it? Uh, Propitiation is the correct word, but it's a, it's a rather large word. It basically means to appease an offended person. And God was, his wrath fell on Jesus. The lamb had to be sacrificed. So his wrath fell on Jesus rather than on us. So he bore God's wrath for us. Thirdly, when it, we're talking about uh, substitution we were separated from God but he reconciled Jesus in his death reconciled us to God 
2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He paid the penalty for our sins. He bore God's wrath. And thirdly, he reconciled us to God. We were separated from God and he reconciled us. And lastly, when we talk about substitution, we read in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ. We were in bondage to sin and Satan. We were in his kingdom. And Jesus redeemed us as a result of what he did on the cross for us and of course including his resurrection jesus is saying in this passage that he is the passover lamb he was the substitute for us and we remember that every time we take part in the elements at communion the gospel is included in what we do when we take communion then the passage goes on from verse 31 And this is called Jesus Predicts Peter's Denial in my Bible. And it says, Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Now, I'm going to read something that comes from the end of this chapter, uh, end of chapter... uh, 26 from verses 69 through to the end of the chapter because it talks about Peter actually denying the Lord. I didn't think I could really talk about Jesus uh, predicting Peter's denial without actually talking about Peter's denial itself. And my apologies to the person who's going to be talking about this particular passage uh, in a few weeks' time. Actually, it's me, so I can apologise to myself. Uh, Peter disowns Jesus, verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside 
and wept bitterly. Now, there's a legend about the frog and the scorpion. I don't know whether anyone has ever heard of this legend, or fable perhaps is a better, better word for it. The scorpion wanted to cross the river, but of course scorpions can't swim. So he said to the frog, why don't I hop on your back and you swim across the river and I'll then be able to get to the other side. But the frog said, no, why would I want to do that? You'll sting me and I'll die. And the scorpion said, well, that'd be rather silly of me because if I sting you halfway across the river, you die and I sink and I can't swim and we'll both die. And the logic sort of made sense to the frog and he said, well, okay, I'll take the scorpion across with me. Well, he swam part of the way across and he got about halfway across the river and the scorpion stung him. And as, they, as he was dying, as the frog was dying, he said, I thought you said you weren't going to sting me. Why did you do it? And the scorpion said, I couldn't help myself. It's in my nature. It's in my character. And you know, this failure of Peter's was not a failure because he failed to do something. It was a failure of character. Now, we all fail from time to time. Sometimes we fail in a task. Sometimes we fail to do things that we said we'd do. Sometimes we fail for all sorts of other reasons. But perhaps the worst type of failure is a failure of character where you really, really do let yourself down. It's not just that other people would see it. It really, you let yourself down. And Peter's failure, unfortunately was a failure of character. So we need to ask ourselves, why did Peter deny Jesus? Well, it may well have started with overconfidence because Peter says here, <coughs> Peter says here, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. There may have been a certain amount of pride in, in that as well. Others may deny you, Lord, but, but I would never do it. So it starts, I guess, with a certain amount of overconfidence and perhaps pride. But when it comes to the actual denial, I wonder sometimes whether Peter denied or didn't have the strength to stand up to what these people were saying about him. And if you read the chapter, you'll find that preceding his denial, the passage where he denies Jesus, is Gethsemane. And Jesus goes into Gethsemane and he goes, takes Peter, James and John with him and he goes aside and he prays. But what does he expect the three disciples to do as well? He expects them to pray. In fact, he says in verse 41, he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Did they pray? They didn't. It says they were asleep. Three times, apparently. They were, Jesus came back to them and they were asleep each of those times. 
I suspect that if Peter had been praying during that time that Jesus was praying, he wouldn't have fallen to the temptation to deny Jesus. If we fail, I guess many times it's due to the fact that we are not praying. We're weak, we give in to temptation, we give in to things that we didn't think we ever would and I suspect that if we'd been praying about it, we wouldn't have fallen. Perhaps also he was in fear of physical harm. Maybe one of these servant girls would have said, oh, this man has, uh, has admitted that he was with Jesus, we better go and tell one of the soldiers. Who knows? We don't really know whether he was in fear of his life or in fear of uh, physical harm. But whatever the reason for Peter's denial, he did deny the Lord and it was a failure, as I said, a failure of character, unfortunately. So why did this failure of Peter's not completely destroy him? Well, the answer lies in Luke 22, verse 32, where Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. This failure of Peter's did not completely destroy him. It was not, as they say, this failure was not fatal because Jesus had prayed for him. He had already predicted, as we read earlier, he had already predicted that Simon, that Peter would deny him. But he says here that I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. We may fail, but we have a, an advocate with the Father, we read in Hebrews, in heaven who is praying for us and, and interceding for us. And as our high priest in heaven interceding for us, we can be sure that he's praying the same sorts of prayer as he did here for Peter. I'm praying that your faith may not fail. But I think the other reason why Peter, this particular failure of Peter's didn't completely destroy him is because he repented. We read in verse 75 that um, he went outside and wept bitterly. In another gospel, it says that Jesus, he turned and he actually saw Jesus. And you can imagine that look. And it says he went outside and wept bitterly. In other words, he didn't just fail and say, oh, oh woe is me. He failed and he completely repented. And that's what we need to do when we fail. And I've got some interesting quotes here about failure. They're not all from men of faith, but it doesn't matter, they're very true. Starting with the, the first one that says failure, failure isn't fatal, but failure to change might be, someone called John Wooden. Failure should be our teacher, not our undertaker. Failure is delay, not defeat. It is a temporary detour, not a dead end. Failure is something we can avoid only by saying nothing, doing nothing, and being nothing. This is a well-known one by Thomas Edison. I've not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Success is not final. Failure is not fatal. It is the courage to continue that counts. Winston Churchill. 
C.S. Lewis said, failures are finger posts on the road to achievement. And lastly, it is not how far you fall, but how high you bounce that counts. We've all been there, maybe not to the extent that Peter did, and it's public, of course, it's now in this book for all eternity, but we often fail and often we feel like giving up. But the point of Peter's, of it being recorded here about Peter's failure is that we might learn from him. And I suppose we could go on and talk about John 21 where Peter's restoration occurs, where Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? But we've run out of time. Failure is not fatal. The gospel is included whenever we take communion. Jesus, as our substitute, is the one that bore the penalty for our sins, that uh, redeemed us back to God, that restored the broken relationship, bore the penalty, bore the, the wrath of God, all included when we take the bread and the wine. It's the gospel. And if there's anyone here that maybe didn't take communion because they don't really know the Lord, then I'm sure there's plenty of people here that would love to talk to you about what it means to be prepared to take communion and remember Jesus as our substitute. Let us pray. Loving God and Heavenly Father, we remember... <clears throat> this passage we read about the Last Supper, Jesus doesn't say, do this in remembrance of me in this particular passage. But Lord, whenever we take communion, we know that we're remembering his sacrifice, remembering all that he accomplished as a result of that sacrifice, our Passover lamb. We just want to thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence that we can be known as your children, that we can know you as our Heavenly Father simply because of having faith in Jesus. We accept him as our substitute. We love him for it. And because we love him, we want to serve him. We give thanks in his precious name. Amen. Thanks, Ian. What a great message. Let's stand, shall we? Mm -hmm.